Robinson hit that ball. It went zooming across the left field wall. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And Jackie Robinson was born on This Day in History in 1919. And we're about to tell you a heck of a story, the story behind the story of how Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey integrated baseball. It's a great scene from a movie about two men who changed American civic life. The cigar-chomping general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, played by Harrison Ford, is negotiating deal points with a new player, Jackie Robinson, in his office. This is back, by the way, when negotiating a player's contract consisted of management setting the price and players accepting it. But this was no normal negotiation. The only point of contention wasn't salary or bonus. It was character. One question is... And you control your temper. My temper? Yes, your temper. What are you, deaf? A black man in white baseball. <laughs> Can you imagine the reaction? The vitriol? Dodgers check into a hotel, a, a, a decent, good hotel. You're worn out from the road. Some clerk won't give you the pen to sign in with. We got no room for you, boy. Not even down in the coal bin where you belong. Team stops at a restaurant. Waiter won't take your order. Didn't you see the sign on the door? No n- allowed. What are you going to do then? Fight him? Ruin all my plans? Answer me, you black son of a... B- Robinson rises out of anger, but he quickly realizes Ricky is testing him. He's not sure why or how. You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No. No. I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse, and they'll, they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say the Negro lost his temper that the Negro does not belong. Your enemy will be out in force and you cannot meet him on his own low ground. Just moments later in this pivotal scene in the movie and in the lives of these two men, Ricky drives the point home one last time. Like our savior, you gotta have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? You give me a uniform. You give me a a number on my back. I'll give you the gut. It was a powerful scene, but there was a gaping hole in it, and in the movie. And it was a terrific movie, but for this hole. And there were some serious unanswered questions. What savior? was Ricky referring to? Why did Ricky choose to integrate baseball and not some other manager? Why this young black man to enter such a sacred pact and not another in the Negro Leagues? And why, why did Robinson agree to those terms? That unnamed savior, by the way, 
was Jesus Christ. He was Branch Rickey's savior, and he was Jackie Robinson's too. Why would a movie about these two great men glance over such a big fact? For the same reasons Hollywood glanced over Johnny Cash's faith in Walk the Line and Louis Zamperini's in the adaptation of Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. Leaving Christ out of Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson's lives is like leaving Apple computers out of the lives of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, or the Mafia out of John Gotti and Al Capone's. It was that important. So back to those questions, we need to first understand why Ricky took it upon himself to be the first front office leader in Major League Baseball in all American professional sports to field a black player. And remember, this was back when the NFL was barely a league, and the NBA even less so. Baseball wasn't just the biggest national sport, it was the only national sport. And Brooklyn wasn't exactly a hotbed of cultural sensitivity. Fierce racism existed between the many ethnic groups crowded in and around Ebbets Field in Flatbush. This was a huge risk Ricky was taking with his ball club, with his career, and with his life. What was the source of Ricky's calling, his courage? Well, Eric Metaxas had a word or two on this at USA Today. Eric is also a terrific author, wrote the remarkable book Bonhoeffer. For starters, Metaxas said, Ricky was a Bible-thumping Methodist who refused to attend games on Sunday. He sincerely believed it was God's will that he integrate baseball, and he saw it as an opportunity to intervene in the moral history of the nation, as Lincoln had done. The legendary sportscaster Red Barber who called games for the Brooklyn Dodgers, told the story of when he first learned about Ricky's intention to bring a black player to Brooklyn. It was a shock to me when Mr. Ricky told me in confidence that he was going to bring a black player. He told me this before the Avenue Robinson was coming. He told me this in March of 1945. And he didn't come in touch with Robinson himself until late that year. You know, when you go back and you watch 42, in that great scene that we played before, there's a board and there were a bunch of names on it. And those were all the players in the Negro Leagues that Branch Rickey was auditioning. Because he needed not just a great player, but the player with a temperament. And by the way, he pretty much believed it needed to be a Christian temperament. How else to get through that kind of name-calling? By the way, as Martin Luther King got through it, too, with dignity. When we come back, the rest of the story behind the story... The faith of Jackie Robinson, the faith of Branch Rickey, celebrating Jackie Robinson's birthday on this day in history in 1919. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? It went zooming across the left field wall. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild Because he knocked that ball a solid mile, yeah, boy Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball Satchel Page is mellow, so is Campanella Newcomb and Dobie, too Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that ball? Did he hit it? Yes, and that ain't all. He's so old. Yes, yes, Jack is real gone. And we continue 
with a celebration of the life of Jackie Robinson, born on this day in history in 1919. And now we turn again to author Eric Metaxas talking about that first meeting between Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. Knowing that Jackie shared his Christian faith and wanting to reinforce the spiritual dimensions of what the two men were about to embark upon, Ricky brought out a copy of a book titled Life of Christ by Giovanni Papini. He flipped to the passage in which Papini discusses the Sermon on the Mount and refers to it as the most stupefying of Jesus' revolutionary teachings. It certainly was revolutionary. In fact, it seemed impossible. In Matthew 5:38 through 41, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And it turns out, Ricky chose Robinson because he too believed in those words. Ricky and Robinson both believed that turning the other cheek wasn't merely a practical thing to do, Metaxas explained, but the right thing to do. Ricky deliberately sought Jackie because he was looking for a player whose behavior on and off the field would be as exemplary as his athletic performance. He knew it would take faith in a higher power to do it. So where did Robinson's faith get cultivated? Well, Rachel Robinson, Jackie's wife, was interviewed, and she had this to say about Jackie's mom, Mally. Quote, I believe that Jackie derived his sense of himself, his life, his mission, and the courage to carry it out from his mom. His mother was an extraordinary woman, courageous, determined, extremely religious, and self-reliant. She'd been a sharecropper in Georgia. Her husband left her with five small kids. So she packed them up and took them to California, all alone. Mally managed to purchase a home for the family from her salary as a domestic worker and she created an environment that was filled with positive values as well as love. Through it all, Robinson's mom emphasized to all of her children the deep belief that God would always take care of them. Jackie Robinson told reporters years later this, I never stop believing any of what my mom taught me. When Robinson was a young man, he was involved in fights and a few brushes with the law too. Again, his father had left the picture. All were prompted by his reaction to racial slights and attacks. In his book, Jackie Robinson, a biography, author Arnold Rampersad described how the young Robinson was rescued from a life on the streets and mentored by a man named Reverend Carl Downs. Downs ended up being not only a father figure to Robinson, but also brought Robinson closer to God, closer to his spiritual father. It was through Downs' mentorship and instruction that faith seeped into Robinson's consciousness, the author wrote. With it came the same personal moral code taught by most white and black Protestants in the early 20th century. Faith in God, Rampersad wrote, began to register in Robinson as both a mysterious force beyond his comprehension, but also a pragmatic way to negotiate the world. As an athlete at UCLA, and Robinson, by the way, was the only athlete in UCLA history to letter in four sports, he was notoriously clean living openly averting the drinking and carousing that accompanies college life, and publicly disclosing to all that could hear that he was saving sex for marriage. Those character traits, those daily habits, and his deep-held religious beliefs all contributed to Ricky's decision to choose Robinson over all of the other players to integrate into the league, 
It didn't hurt that Robinson was a remarkable athlete who would go on to become one of the best hitters and base dealers in the entire league. What was most remarkable, though, about Robinson's faith as the years proceeded was how it allowed him to see all the positive things in his life and the good people around him. In his book, 42 Faith, The Rest of the Jackie Robinson Story, then CNN and now Fox News reporter Ed Henry spent a good deal of time explaining how Robinson managed to remain happy and hopeful despite the hate and adversity around him. Though he was the focus of a barrage of racial insults and death threats, throughout his career, Robinson still managed to say these words and mean them. Quote, This country and its people, black and white, have been good to me. Robinson's faith was not of the pious variety or a self-righteous kind either. He knew his limits and his deficits. I'm not the most religious person in the world, he noted in his unpublished manuscript. But I do believe in God and in the Bible and in trying to do the right thing as I understand it. In a 1950 newspaper interview, Robinson emphasized his faith in God and talked openly about his habit of kneeling at his bedside every night to pray. It's the best way to get closer to God, he said, and added with a smile and a hard-hit ball. Martin Luther King said this about prayer, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Robinson's prayer life not only sustained him through hard times, but enabled him to bring a touch of God's grace and mercy to a world in deep need of both. Robinson's earthly athletic talents didn't hurt either. He played some epic baseball in his career in Brooklyn as the team's leader. In his 10 seasons, the Dodgers won six National League pennants. In 1949, he batted 342 to win the league title. Branch Rickey died on December 9, 1965. He was 83 years old. He was in the middle of a speech he was giving while being elected into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. Jackie Robinson, he died at the age of 53, too young, a result of a heart attack. It was October 24, 1972. And to end this segment, we thought there'd be no better person to throw to than Red Barber. And before we do, a last quote from Jackie Robinson. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives, he told reporters not long before he passed. He and Branch Rickey, through their love of God and baseball, changed this country forever. And now let's hear from Red Barber's final thoughts about this great athlete and man. The story of Jackie Robinson is not in his base hits or his percentage or his stolen bases. To me, the story is Robinson, the spiritual man who didn't answer back for three years. And that is what made it possible for the others. And it's so true, that's what made it possible. And again, that's what 42 left out of the movie. And I'm not sure why movie makers do this, but they do it all the time. Leave out the source of the inspiration for the great men that do great things. By the way, Robinson's life, the way he carried himself became a model for Martin Luther King. Watch the two. Google both men. Watch Jackie Robinson's last interview with Dick Cavett. Look at the way he carried himself, the way he talked, the way he behaved. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale has a deep connection 
to the racial history of this country. Dr. Larry Arn, in a speech not too long ago, said this, Hillsdale was an abolitionist college. Hillsdale is an anti-slavery college on both Christian and political levels. On January 21st, 1863, Frederick Douglass gave a lecture in the college chapel titled Popular Error and Unpopular Truth. A report published in the Chicago Tribune, There Was No Transcript, described Douglass as saying that, quote, the Civil War was the logical sequence following the wrong of human slavery. We had attempted to contravene the laws of God by transforming men into beasts of burden. And it's so true. It's the original sin of this great country, slavery. And by the way, Hillsdale, well, it sent a higher percentage of its students to fight in the Civil War than any Western college. And by the way, that was back when Michigan wasn't just a northern state. It was a western state. 400 students fought for the Union. Four were Medal of Honor winners. Three became general officers. Many more were regimental commanders, full bird colonels, leading regiments of up to 1,000 men in the beginning of the war. And of course, those regiments shrunk to 500 or less due to death and injury and attrition. 60 died and paid the ultimate price. Hillsdale College, they teach all the beautiful things in life, liberty, history, art. And if you can't get to Hillsdale or never had the privilege to go or visit, Hillsdale will visit you through the free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. On this day in history, in 1919, Jackie Robinson was born. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for another On Leadership story, this time with the first Marine to ever be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace. The third of four kids of an Italian immigrant Brooklyn, New York family, Pace graduated from the Naval Academy in 1967 and soon found himself leading a platoon in the middle of the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. After a distinguished career in and out of combat, Pace retired in 2007 as a four-star general. He then did what so many great old Marines do. They try to help the young ones coming up. We're going to listen in on General Pace's talk with third-class midshipmen at the Naval Academy. These are 19-year-olds, but Annapolis, along with other service academies and some standout civilian universities like Hillsdale, 
takes the moral formation of its students very seriously. And so naturally, Pace began his talk with the young midshipmen with a story from back when he was in their shoes. But when I was a third-class mid, don't know why, but both of my roommates decided they were going to start smoking pipes. I watched this for about a week, and I wanted to be part of the family, so to speak. So I went down to the mid-store, bought a pipe. It was $5.50. I paid for it with a $10 bill. There were no credit cards back then. I went back to my room, and I sat there for about two or three days looking at this pipe and saying to myself, why are you doing this? You don't even like to smoke. So I took the pipe back down to the mid-store and was going to trade it back in for my $10 bill, right? I don't remember all the specifics. I should, but I don't. But for some reason, while I was down there, I decided I'm going to keep it. So I go back to my room. Two days later, I get called down to the commandant's office. And he says to me, you have been accused of stealing a pipe from the midshipman store. Because there were no receipts, because we didn't do business then like we do now, I had no way of proving that, yes, I had been in the midshipman store with the pipe in my hand. Yes, I had walked out without paying for it that day, but I had paid for it three days before. I was, I mean, my stomach was a wreck. My brother was in the class of 65. And he came to me, and he said, Pete, I love you. If you stole that pipe, you have got to stand up and admit it. And if you did not steal that pipe, then you need to stand your ground, and I'm with you. I really do not know how this thing might have turned out, except for what happened the day after. One of my classmates was a guy named John Griffin. He was our third class company commander. And John saw that I was upset and said to me, what's the problem? And I told John that I'd been accused of stealing a pipe. And he said, you mean the pipe that I saw you with? And he mentioned the day before the day that I supposedly stole it. And I said, John, are you sure that you saw me with that? And he said, I'm positive because we were doing this. We were studying for this, this test. Da, 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 da. John went and saw the company officer, told him what he had seen. I was exonerated. But there was about a month of my life where I really thought that I was going to be shown the door because I had no way to prove myself. Pace then carried the lessons from that month through to the rest of his career. As a result of that, quite honestly, I've been more lenient on more people than I should have been. Every time some PFC stood in front of me and swore up and down that he didn't do whatever it was he didn't do, I tended to believe him. I'm not sorry I did. 
Because when you're a leader, you can always show some leniency. If they deserve to be shown the leniency, you'll feel great about having been the leader who gave it to them. And if they don't deserve to be shown the leniency, they'll show themselves again, and you can kill them then. And great advice. After graduating from the academy, Pace quickly found himself leading a platoon of Marines in Vietnam in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And there, something else happened that also shaped his career and his life. We were on patrol. And an incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through, what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge? 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am, so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from this remarkable speech, General Peter Pace, sharing stories from his life. I mean, these are confessionals of a sort. I mean, he was a hair trigger away from killing a whole lot of innocent people because he was just ticked off. 
And so setting your moral compass, we can all hear words of wisdom like that. And by the way, we all need a sergeant like that who just stares at us. And by the way, that sergeant was going up against a higher rank. He wasn't saying anything, but he was through his silence and through his stare. And we all have that opportunity with our bosses, with people we know and care about. More on leadership. General Peter Pace's stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We return to General Peter Pace's talk at Annapolis with 19-year-olds. And not many 19-year-olds are hearing this message, let alone having everything that's happening around them reinforcing this message. And where we left off, Peter Pace had just told a remarkable story about, well, a couple of stories actually about events that changed his life. And... Of course, not all moral courage is about restraint. Sometimes it's about making the decision that's right for your subordinates, but possibly is hazardous to your career. Here's Pace telling a story from the 1980s when he was commanding about a thousand Marines. When I was Lieutenant Colonel Battalion Commander, my battalion was was afloat aboard ship. We were off the Philippines, and we got word that the U.S. Embassy wanted my Marines to come ashore and be part of a parade for President Marcos. The island on which they were going to have the parade was a known island of violence, a lot of insurgents. I said, okay, we can do this, but we're coming in with ammunition because I'm not going to have my mortars, my machine guns, my rifles, and most importantly, my Marines challenged while they're in this parade by insurgents. The word came back. They said, oh, no, you can't do that. You cannot march past President Marcos with ammunition. And my answer back was, okay, we're not going to march past President Marcos. This became a very, very sensitive subject. Messages going back and forth. And I refused put my Marines ashore. We went back to Okinawa from once we'd come aboard ship. And when I got off ship, I got word that the uh, division commander wanted to see me right away. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, Lieutenant Colonel, 16 years of service, four to go to retirement. Uh, now what? What am I going to do next, right? <laughs> I was okay with my decision, but I didn't know whether or not the division commander was. So I walked in and report to him, Major General Glasgow. I walk in, I report, and Sir Lieutenant Colonel Pace reporting is ordered. He looks at me and says, Pete, I'm proud of you. <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to be Pete, you're fired, or what are we going to be? Okay? But it reinforced for me again. I didn't do that lightly, I didn't do it glibly. I thought about it a lot, real hard. I mean, there's other times when I thought about things really hard and done it wrong. 
you owe yourself as a leader to think about things the best you can and get to the best clarity you can and then make your decision and live with it and be comfortable in your own skin. Being comfortable in your own skin, that's a tough one when you're making tough decisions like these with so many people's lives on the line. And of course, the higher up in rank one goes, the more complicated and consequential these decisions become. Pace then told the midshipman a story from when he was a one-star brigadier general in the early 1990s. I get a call from the Commandant of Marine Corps saying, hey, uh, 1st Marine Division is going to go to Somalia. They don't have an assistant division commander. General Wilhelm is division commander wants you as his deputy. Can you go? So I went, and we go ashore. The port of Mogadishu is really very small. We had three pre-positioned ships with the equipment and one small port that could take one ship at a time. So the ships are coming in and out and they're putting stuff on the, uh, on the uh, deck and, putting, and taking what they need. And because the port itself was so small, you couldn't leave stuff out. You had to put it all back. Whatever you didn't use, you put back on the ship. It went back out. The next ship came in. We're about to go attack a warlord's compound. He has T-55 tanks. Now, if T-55 tanks are significant if you're wearing nothing but your uniform, but kind of pieces of trash if you happen to have your nice M1A1 tank. And you can stand up and take shots with your M1A1 all day long and kill T-55s before they get anywhere near where they can shoot. So we're feeling pretty good about this. General Wilhelm sitting in one chair, and General Pace is sitting in another chair, and we're being briefed, and all of a sudden, the captain, tank, company commander says, How about, uh, excuse me? The main gun, tank ammo, got sent back out to sea. This is the night before an attack. So I'm sitting there, and I always, I have kind of a strange sense of humor anyway. And, I mean, it was dead silence, and you could just see General Wilhelm. His jaws were getting... I mean, you could tell he was about to go eat something. (laughs) And I looked at him, and I kind of smirked, and I said, we should do this without ammo. Put yourself in the warlord's position. Do you think that he thinks that we're stupid enough not to have ammo? (laughs) Wilhelm, who was, went from being totally pissed to being hysterical, says, you're right, but now that we've had our yucks, we're saying, okay, fair enough, this is going to work, but just in case he doesn't believe that we actually have ammo, you know, we need to make sure we've got Cobra gunships and all that stuff stacked up. So the ethical part of this was making sure we, in fact, protected PFC Pace, but the decision part of it was, we need to do this, and we can do this, and nobody would think we're that stupid. So we were that stupid, and we got away with it. (laughs) Having shared some personal stories from throughout his four decades in uniform, General Pace then gave these midshipmen some advice for their careers. Grow where you are planted. You're going to get a chance two-plus years from now, to put in your request for what you want to do next. Some of you are not going to get your first choice. 
the Marines and the sailors who are looking to you don't care whether it's your first choice or your 12th choice. They need you and they deserve from you that you be the best leader you can possibly be for them. I promise you, if you will ask for and fight for what you want in an assignment and then go do whatever you're told to do like it was your first choice, you will always get another great job as a follow-on job. Why? Because there are more great jobs than there are great people. You can drive yourself nuts worrying about what somebody two or three levels above you is doing that's not right. And there's not a darn thing you can do about that. So my recommendation to you is stay in your lane. And an officer's lane, in my opinion, is what he or she is responsible to do and an understanding of what your boss and their boss are doing and an understanding of what your first subordinate and their first subordinate are doing. If you will focus on that bandwidth and operate as best you can every day in an ethical, moral way with integrity, your, in the case of Marines, your 40 Marine platoon will very quickly become a 200-man company, will very quickly become a 1,000-man battalion because you're focused on the things that you are responsible for and over which you have some ability to have impact. And what great advice that applies to everything in life. Grow where you are planted. The general was telling these 19-year-olds, and there are more great jobs than great people. So true. Don't be in a rush. That was another one I loved. A great coach of mine said, don't be the boy in the rush. Stop rushing. And that's very little difference in that than grow where you are planted. Slow down, make the best of your situation, and learn right here. And by the way, one last story that would probably embarrass General Pace a bit. He's certainly not the sort to push this story himself. After his retirement ceremony at Fort Myer in Virginia on October 1, 2007, General Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. By the way, we did too. We sent our Hillsdale students there. And you can go to our website. It was a special Memorial Day celebration. And they talked to folks in front of that memorial, one of the most beautiful memorials in all of Washington, D.C. But Pace went to that memorial the striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,307 Americans who paid the ultimate price in Vietnam. And onto each 3 by 5 piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And again, each of these 3 by 5s was for men who died in his platoon in Vietnam. On those cards, he wrote, These are yours, not mine, exclamation point. With love and respect, your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And there you have it, Peter Pace's story to the third-class midshipmen at the U.S. Naval Academy. In a way, their stories, too, all the fallen men's stories, 
in Vietnam. This is Our American Stories. stories where we love to hear your stories about a loved one who's passed or about your very first job as a kid. And we've done a whole lot of stories from you and by you in your own voice. And today, well, this story is about a quirk. Yes, a quirk. And we've all got them. And we've all got a story around our quirks. And our families have certainly stories about our quirks. Well, a listener and a friend in Chicago, Nick Zagoda, joins us now against his wife's advice to discuss his hygiene quirk. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's always good to speak to you. You bet. And Nick, we hear that great Chicago accent. We love accents on this show. And uh, tell us a little bit and tell the audience what you do for a living and why your wife just implored you not to do this. I've been a lifetime Chicagoan. As you can tell, I've tried to lose this accent for 60 years and I gave up about 20 years ago. And, uh, 20 years ago when I was 40, I gave up. I'm 60 now. I've lived here my whole life, and uh, and it, it's part of me, I guess, and I can't get rid of it. I have a law practice downtown in Chicago. I've got two partners, and we've got 11 other lawyers that work for us. We're corporate and transactional lawyers who do sophisticated uh, corporate and transactional and M&A work on a, on a daily basis, both nationally and internationally. And when I told my wife, my friend Lee wanted to speak about this today, she said, are you out of your mind telling people about this? If I were you, I'd be hiding it. <laughs> but I don't think I've got anything to hide. I don't think, I think everybody's got something, and, and this happens to be mine. Well, that's good, and you're owning it, and I love that. So let's talk about it. This hygiene thing you have, there's some kind of story that encapsulates it all about you and a commuter train. Tell the story, Nick. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not so good with people and uh, shaking hands and eating at communal tables and et cetera, et cetera. People I know are fine. People I don't know, I have no idea where it started. I just uh, don't feel good in positions where I don't know people and we're very close. And I never take the train. I've been driving downtown from my suburban home where my wife and I have lived for 38 years to uh, downtown Chicago every day for 38 years. And my wife will tell me on occasion, what are you crazy? You're complaining about the traffic. Why don't you jump on the train and i say cast the train we're just close to people we don't know if we could get a private train car where i could pick the people that come on the train car that i knew that they don't have to be young or old rich or poor 
nice or mean, I just have to know them. Unfortunately, that's not the way the commuter system works in Chicago, so they're with strangers on the train. And last winter, it was a horrible day. We had two or three feet of snow, and it was still snowing. And I said to my wife, I have to get downtown today. And she said, well, get on the train. You know you're going to get there. It's not going to take you two and a half hours to get there and two and a half hours to get home. And I said, Ken, I just can't do the train. She said, you have to do the train. It's crazy to drive. It, it, you're, it, you might get stuck downtown. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, I got on a train. I got on a train at my little suburban train stop. It's about a 35-minute train ride. I was fine till the next stop. A woman got on and sat next to me. I texted my wife. I said, Kath, I, I don't know if this is going to work. There's a woman sitting next to me on a train. She said, Nick, you're on the train. There's going to be someone sitting next to you. Just relax. You're fine. The woman takes her coat off. She puts her takes her coat off, and it's on my leg. I text my wife, Kath, there's a woman next to me on the train. She take, she's taking her coat off, and now her coat is on my leg. And she, Kathy texts back very nicely, please just ask her to remove your coat from her coat from your knee, and everything will be fine. And I said, ma'am, pardon me, but your coat is on my knee. And she gives me a glaring look, and she moves her coat from my knee. Then she starts coughing. And I said to Kathy, in the text, Kath, now she's coughing. And I'm getting freaked out here. I think you're going to have to pick me up at the next stop. And she said, okay, listen, if you think I'm going to pick you up at the next stop, you're out of your mind. So you <laughs> figure this out, look out the window, ignore the coffin, read your book. I'm trying to read my book. I can't read my book. The woman's coughing. So now she starts sneezing. This is two stops later. So I tell my wife, the University of Chicago is between my house and downtown Chicago. I say, Kathy, you have to pick me up. I have to get off the train at the University of Chicago. This woman is, now she's sneezing, and she's not covering her nose, and, and I'm in a mess, and I don't know what to do, and I can't. There's nowhere to go. There's people standing in the aisles of the train. I can't possibly move. I can't do it. You have to pick, and she said, listen, genius, if I drive to the University of Chicago, it'll take me two hours to get there. Then it'll take both of us two and a half or three hours to get home. So here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you forget about this for a while. And get, I said, you're not going to come and say, she, I am not going to come and save you. She did not come and save me. I survived. Rather scarred, I might add, but I survived. <laughs> Went downtown, went straight to uh, the Union League Club in Chicago, where I've been a member forever, took a shower, changed my clothes, and was able to go to work for a full day without working. But thank goodness I have a change of clothes there. Or otherwise, that would never, ever would I have been able to last a full day. And thanks for that story. And you're listening to Nick Zagoda, and he's a lawyer in Chicago and a friend. And this segment, well, it's my quirk is what we're calling it. And we want to hear your quirk and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We've all got one, folks, and just confess. Confess, share it with us. I mean, and I love the way Nick owns his. He just owns his. One day I'll write up mine. Uh, mine's just as embarrassing as his, and it's got to be embarrassing. And so whatever your quirk is, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Nick Zagoda's quirk. Well, a lot of our quirks, those of us who are neat freaks, and I am one, I never step into a public shower without something on my feet, ever. People look at me funny. I don't care. I'm wearing something on my feet or I ain't getting in. My quirk, just one of them, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we bring you conversations with leaders ranging from athletic coaches to entrepreneurs to teachers, military leaders, philanthropists, people from every walk of life. And you can find them all at ouramericannetwork.org and click on On Leadership in the Topic section. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this latest edition. Steve Klinsky is the founder of the private equity firm New Mountain Capital. And he's also a father. Literally, I was driving home with my family from a vacation last summer. And one of my sons says, hey, dad, I learned what you do in school. You guys buy companies and you fire everybody. I said, wait a second, wait a second, pull out the iPad, go to the New Mountain website, pull up the social dashboard, read it out loud. And this is what his son read on this so-called social dashboard. New Mountain itself has added or created over 26,000 jobs at the companies we've owned, why we've owned them, net of any job losses. The jobs pay way more than the national average because these are you know, high-margin, high-growth companies that we own. We've spent over $3.5 billion on R&D, software, and capital expenditures. We've never had a bankruptcy. We've never missed an interest payment. I think we've created something like $18 billion for ourselves and our co-investors. And these co-investors are not whom you might think. Many of them are the retirement funds for folks like teachers and police officers and also college endowments, which provide scholarships for those who can't afford the tuition. So when Steve's New Mountain Capital is creating value, that's who they're creating it for. Let alone all those jobs that he mentioned and let alone their company's products themselves that give all of us stuff that we want, like their company of Vantors, high quality ingredients that make up our pharmaceutical drugs that save our lives. Think this story is being told at your kid's school? Or have you heard it in the media? But all of us did hear them tell this story. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking. The collapse of Lehman Brothers set off a wave of panic. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. After Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, you say that the banks, the big banks are still at it, still gambling. Unfortunately, they are. If Wall Street does not end its greed, we will end it for them. Steve Klinsky heard this story too, and it moved him to do something. We started doing a social dashboard right after Lehman Brothers collapsed in 08 because there was so much anger in the country against business, against Wall Street, against private equity, and everybody's trying to figure out who to blame that I just wanted to be on record for ourselves, just what we ourselves do here at New Mountain. And just no one asked us to do this social dashboard. I just asked my team to pull together what I think are very common sense metrics. A lot of people assume that everyone in my field is like Danny DeVito who comes in and some little miserable guy who you know, sells the desk and melts down the phone for plastic or something. I mean, it's just not what, it's just, it's just the stereotype that, that we're always fighting against. The stereotype of having no soul, of making investment bets coldly and without any concern 
for other human beings. Well, in the single greatest bet of Steve's life, he poured out his soul, literally. I was driving home in a cab on a December night in New York. I had just seen a movie that you know made me think about my brother who had passed away. I was kind of in a in a bit of a melancholy mood, and I was coming home, and it was a rainy, misty night in December. And I look out the window, and there's a woman that I think is very beautiful walking up the street crying in the night in December in the mist. And I just told for you, know, I just kind of got a feeling. I asked the cab driver to stop, and I got out, and I ended up, you know, kind of been able to get catch up to her, tap her on the shoulder, and uh, we had a very brief conversation, but that led to me meeting my wife, and so it was a kind of a, uh, a lucky, uh, a, a lucky event. Or you have good intuition. I had good intuition, or it's just a, a good karmic night. Um, she paints it a little more colorfully, telling you to go away. You didn't include that in your answer. Well, like I, I, I it didn't, we didn't get married the first day, so I was more, uh, I was more, uh, you know, I, it, it took a little time to convince her that uh, I was the right guy and all that. Ah, Steve's still holding back on me. His now bride recalled that night to the New York Times like this, quote, he kept saying, doesn't the city look cool tonight? And my first reaction was, get this guy away from me. I remember looking at the walk and don't walk signs flashing and thinking, I am going to lose him on one of these corners. The only thing I told him was my name and where I worked. And finally, I just said, look, I don't want to talk to you. But she clearly changed her mind. And they are still married 22 years later. It's like one of these lucky things where you meet somebody and the odds are a million to one, it's going to be the right person. And then by the second date, it's 500,000 to one. And, by the, you know, and then you just start feeling better and better. So it's, it's not something that's reproducible, but it worked out great. And, um, you know, and, and there it is. Of course, a finance guy talks about love like a finance guy with numbers and odds and all. Ridiculous. <laughs> And in the early years of their marriage, he and his bride would often spend their quality time together trying to help others make sure that their lives weren't left up to chance. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother's name was Gary. And when I was in kindergarten, he was in seventh grade. And I would come home from school and he would give me school after school. He would have reading circles and workbooks and he was a big influence on me and my education. Uh, he passed away from illness when he was 29, when I was still in graduate school. And when I got into my 30s and I had achieved, you know, started to have some success in my career, I wanted to be something in his memory. And I went out and started up after school centers in a neighborhood of New York called East New York, which at the time, this was during the crack wars in the 90s, it was the highest murder part of New York City and the most dangerous. They had more murders in this neighborhood than the state of Nebraska. So it was a really kind of under siege neighborhood and had the notion, let's go to the most disadvantaged traditional public school in that area and create kind of a clubhouse in the school building after school to extend the day by 50% and do things in a fun way where it feels like thematic play. You know, you're studying the rainforest and you make, turn the room into a, the rainforest with art and you build a terrarium and you map the rainfall, those type of things. So we set that up in 1993 and that's still going today. 
And we're going to bring you more of Steve Klinsky's story after a few messages from our sponsors. And by the way, we love bringing you these stories from the private equity industry, like Steve's, that the rest of the media just isn't telling you. And not because they're in private equity, but because so many of them just have incredible stories and stories that you wouldn't expect. By the way, it's why we do Shark Tank. I mean, in the end, that's private equity, private capital, private money, helping other private people live their dreams. That's what it is. And how the media has turned this into the people with that money are somehow evil. And again, this is why we love Shark Tank. You know, remember, remember the beginning of that show? We learned that all the panelists started with nothing. Barbara Corcoran, who we're going to do an hour on, her life is so remarkable. I mean, she was a waitress. And she got her husband uh, or had a guy in his li- her life who just told her she wasn't going to amount to anything. She built up a pretty sizable real estate business with him. And then he walks out with some younger girl. And she's like, what am I going to do next? Starts her own company. Now, because of that success from the sale of her company, she's helping other entrepreneurs live their dreams. And that our young people don't know this story, that the American people don't know this story about capital. The human kind and the money kind, well, it's tragic, and we're going to do something about it here on this show. By the way, we've told a couple of other great stories on leadership as it relates to private equity. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. One of our favorites was Madison Dearborn Partners founder John Canning's story of handling the horses at a Jewish summer camp, even though he never interacted with a horse in his life, and even though he wasn't Jewish. And today, by the way, John is one of the biggest supporters of Catholic schools in Chicago, even though he's an atheist. And this is what we love about these stories. And of course, our favorite, Robert Agostinelli's story, and he's the founder of the Roan Group, a big private equity firm. His mom worked three jobs to put him through school. His father served in Korea and took a bullet through his jaw. And Robert worked for free at his father's gas station and then went on with all of his wealth to make the National Memorial Day Parade a reality for our vets. These are the people who so many people in the media just don't like and who we love and we know the American people will love. This is Lee Habib, Steve Klinsky's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's terrific interview with Steve Klinsky for our On Leadership series. And then, in 1999, Steve left the company he used to work for, Forceman Little, to try to start his very own investment firm. And by coincidence, something else happened at this same time. The charter law passed in New York State saying that, that there could be charter schools. And I didn't really start New Mountain and have any money for it until January of 2000. So there was a year when I was thinking about New Mountain, but what I was really doing was working harder than I've ever worked in my life almost on, on charter schools. And I decided to get very involved in the charter movement as an extension of the concept that I had done in after school, that if it worked for three hours a day, wouldn't it be great to have the regular 
school, you know, be able to influence that. So I got very, very involved in that whole movement, ended up organizing the first charter school in the state. And even more charter schools after that. And charter schools are public schools that are empowered with more freedom to innovate than traditional public schools. And this first charter school in New York State history that Steve organized, well, he at first didn't know where he wanted to open one or with whom, but these, you know, minor details have a way of sorting themselves out. Originally, my idea was I wanted to stay out of New York City because, you know, if you fail in New York City, you have more enemies and more bad press coverage and, you know, more ability to be attacked, you know, in New York City than, it's, you know, you figure it'd be easier somewhere outside of the city. So I was going to kind of avoid New York City and find some nice place that really needed a school outside of New York. Uh, I was working with a young minister who became a good friend of mine named Marshall Mitchell, who was a theology student, and we were going around looking at every town in New York trying to figure out where to put the school. And it was frustrating because under the charter law, you get less money per student than any traditional public school, and you also get no building. You don't start with a school building the way a traditional school starts with. So you have to both get a building and a school on less money than they pay without this building. You know, it's really tough situation. And we had been looking at every sort of building, you know, burned out discotheques and auto dealer buildings, trying to find a building to put a school in. Marshall said, hey, I know a great guy with a great building and you should meet him, but it's in New York City in Harlem, which would put us right in the center of any political firestorm. And but I eventually said, well, look, let, let's let's go meet him. It turns out Marshall Mitchell's friend is Wyatt T. Walker. Wyatt T. Walker is one of the true heroes of the civil rights movement. He was Martin Luther King's closest friend and aide in the key years of the civil rights movement. So Wyatt Walker was King's chief of staff. He was the first head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was known as the field general for Project C, which was the Birmingham Civil Rights March, where Bull Connor was turning the dogs and the hoses on all the civil rights marchers. I mean, so Wyatt Walker, for anybody who knows the civil rights movement, is a real, is a true hero. And ever since the 60s, was running a church called the Canaan Baptist Church of Harlem on 116th Street. And he had fought drug dealers, and he had fought for housing and for jobs, and he's just a wonderful guy. Anyways, it turned out that that was the guy that Marshall Mitchell wanted me to meet. And what had happened is the church, through tithes, through people giving 20 cents or 50 cents or a dollar every Sunday for years, had gathered up enough money to build a new building at the back of the church. And it was a community center, but it would also work as a school building. And, you know, Dr. Walker had been fighting every social problem in his area, and he was also wanted to fight for better schools because he had seen that decade after decade, the schools had been failing, traditional schools had been failing in Harlem for his kids and for, you know, all the, the neighborhood. And so he he was an early supporter of the charter movement. And the idea that I could come in with this application and with the funding and that we could team up and use his building for a charter school was something that he was absolutely enthusiastic about. And I decided he's such a great guy and, you know, the building would work that we would just take whatever political firestorm we would be in and just let's just do it. You know, and it's symbolically the center of a lot of things in, in civil rights. And I view charter school reform and education reform as civil rights. And so did he. 
I was curious how Steve's very first meeting with Wyatt T. Walker went. It reminded me of our story on the unlikely friendship of Stanley Drunken Miller and Jeffrey Canada. Drunken Miller, this wealthy white Republican investor who grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and Canada, this black Democratic education reformer who grew up in the Bronx and their hilarious first impressions of each other. So how was it for these two guys? And I know Jeff Cannon is a wonderful guy as well. Dr. Walker has a reputation of not suffering fools lightly. So where Jeff Cannon is kind of nice to everybody, Dr. Walker is exceptionally respected, but also, you know, had been known to, uh, if he didn't like you, to make clear that he didn't like you. Easy. So, I mean, even among, you know, I had spent a lot of time in the black churches by that time going around because I was talking with different ministers and stuff. And I was kind of warned, look, this may not go well. I had not spent a lot of time uh, in Harlem and I'm just, you know, but I just figure everybody's a person and treat everybody the same. So, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. We met in a, in a restaurant at the base of a mosque and Walker has been compared to Sean Connery. He's a very handsome, dignified guy. And, uh, but we've become great friends in the years have gone on. Their charter school is called Sicily Walker. And there's a whole book about it that you could pick up. It's titled a light shines in Harlem and a light sure did shine there. The student scores are around double the scores of the traditional public schools that are in the very same neighborhood. Now, Steve mentioned talking with a whole bunch of Christian ministers in New York, and it made me curious. Is Steve of a particular religious faith? I am religious. I'm Jewish, and I'm very influenced by uh, a Jewish theologian who a lot of uh, who a lot of uh, uh, Christian divinity schools like as well. There's a guy named Martin Buber who was a philosopher last century, and he basically made the argument that the purpose of mankind that there's a, essentially a, a drop of divinity in every person and and every aspect of life, and the key is to try to bring that divinity out to hallow, H-A-L-L-O-W, every person and every aspect of life, and that that's the way people should live their life. So, and that everyone's path is different on how to do that. If you oversee one acre of land, you're taking care of that one acre. If you oversee a million acres of land, you're overseeing that million acres and, you know, whatever it is through art or business or everything's a potential path to do that. So I'm very influenced by, by Buber and that idea works my wife is Catholic. My kids are Catholic. I'm, I'm a Catholic church with them every week because I want to be with my family and I view it as the same message from whatever direction it comes. It's that same message of trying to just do decent things and bring that divinity out into the day-to-day world. So, and, I, and I know Walker believes that. And it's interesting, King quoted Buber in the uh, letter from Birmingham Jail, uh, which Walker actually helped King put together that letter. And by the way, Martin Buber's I and Thou may be as important a book anyone could ever read. It's beautiful. And that's why you hear someone from private equity who's married to a Catholic say, I want to bring out the divinity in every walk of life. Again, you're not used to hearing, quote, money men talk like this, but that's them too. And there are good guys who are rich, and there were bad guys who were poor, and It's just all around. And again, we want to bring out the best in every walk of life here on this show. And you hear it from every walk of life and from every walk of life in this show. And we think beauty is everywhere and that God is everywhere. And for those who don't believe in God, that's fine too. 
We're not excluding anyone here on Our American Stories. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Steve Klinsky, our On Leadership series. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do on leadership, music, sports, history. More on Steve Klinsky's life after these messages. This is Our American Stories in our final segment, Alex's interview with Steve Klinsky, our On Leadership series continues. In the spirit of his favorite theologian, Martin Buber, Steve thought that there was more divinity that he could hollow out into the world in his so-called free time while he still got his full-time gig at New Mountain. I was at dinner with some friends back in 2012, and someone said, why is college so expensive, you know? And I tried to explain to them that it's a very, very odd situation, because what had just happened in 2012 was that there had been online courses for full pay for many years. I mean, there's been 20 years of people paying full tuition for online education, and about 5 million students a year take online courses. But back in 2012, some of the best schools like Stanford had started to give away online courses for free, and they were getting lots of students, but you couldn't get credit for it. So you had this odd system of expensive courses from maybe unknown schools at a lot of cost or great courses from great professors at no cost, but you couldn't get credit. You know, So you needed to figure out a way to get free courses for credit. And I tried to explain that to people, and then and no one was really working on it. And I said, "Well, you know, I, I'm entrepreneurial. I've started a lot, you know, New Mountain and companies and lots of you know, and charter schools. I'll let me start thinking about it." Those free courses from places like Stanford and Harvard that Steve mentioned are called MOOCs, and they don't give out credit for them out of a belief that it would diminish their brand. If everyone was able to get credit from Harvard then Harvard wouldn't be seen as an elite brand. It wouldn't be Harvard. So how do you get great instruction for free plus credit? It sounds like an equation that doesn't work. But Steve had an idea, and it came out of his discovery of this little-known thing called the CLEP test, and I had never heard of it. CLEP stands for College Level Examination Program. And like advanced placement or AP exams, passing them can get you credit for college. But unlike AP exams, which you can only take if your high school offers AP courses, anyone can take the CLEP exams and at any time of their life. And thousands of colleges already accept credits from CLEP exams. But... There's not much in the way of CLEP prep courses out there. 
So Steve saw an opportunity, a way to leverage an existing yet underutilized asset. He thought to himself, what if I personally paid teachers to create online club courses so that everyone can take them and I'll offer enough courses that you can get the entirety of freshman year pretty much for free. The only cost is $85 for each club exam. That's less than $1,000 for a full year's worth of credits. How does that sound, parents and students, compared to your 15, 30,000, and 60,000 tuitions out there? And by the way, you can actually get it completely for free right now. Steve is paying for the first 10,000 exam fees and is hoping more donors join him in these sponsorships. Given what I've said, you probably already found their website by now, but if you haven't, it's modernstates.org. Steve's hoping that it'll save students and their families money and also enable folks who couldn't afford college to now be able to. One-fourth of the cost one-fourth of the cost can now be gone for you, vanished into thin air. But I got to admit, when I first heard about what Steve was doing, there was one part of this whole thing that I was pretty skeptical about. Talk about how the education industry has responded to this. I can't seem to think that they like it in terms of, um, I, I know you've said otherwise from what I've, what I've read, but um, you know, I'm if you just think about it, don't they want people butts in their seats paying for tuition? We have gotten wonderful support, not opposition at all, from the major every major system we've talked to. So, for example, the first system we talked to is the State University of New York, which is, I think, the largest public university system in the country, you know, maybe that or California. I think it has 480,000 students or something like that. And they were extremely supportive right off the bat because, yes, they want students in seats, but they also... And, and, and we're an on-ramp for students to get into their seats. And they're under all sorts of social pressure to make college more affordable. So they've been great advocates of the program that this is one good way to do it. And so they've been very supportive. Texas State has been supportive. The public schools and colleges in Tennessee and Ohio. I don't think there's anybody we've spoken to who hasn't been supportive. Which is awesome to hear. And even more awesome is what this thing called the Internet combined with someone like Steve's generosity, can now allow. Look, if you like Mozart, you don't have to go to the Viennese Opera House, you know, and buy a seat at the Viennese Opera House in Vienna, and you don't have to go to your local orchestra and have them play Mozart for you to hear from your local band. You can listen to the Berlin Philharmonic play Mozart on Sirius Radio or Spotify or just over the air, whatever. There's lots of ways to hear great Mozart for free, right? That's just the way technology has evolved. The same idea can work for college courses where what we've done is we've gone to the very best professors we could find and had them teach a course for us, which is now online and available. Once we've paid to do the course, it's like a movie's been done or a YouTube video's on YouTube. Anyone can watch it now. It doesn't cost us any more to have a million people watch it versus one person watch it. We no longer have to settle for a mediocre or subpar teacher or school. If that's what happens to be in our physical area, we can have the best and we deserve the best. One of the reasons I felt 
kind of compelled to do the ideas, I do think it has a chance to help a lot of people. And I think it could be just a very, very big payoff for any charity that I give. So, you know, I've had good success in my career. I was actually, I was able to put this whole thing together for the single digit millions and it could help many, many, many people. So if it helps a million people save a thousand dollars, of course, that would be a billion of value and it could help way more than a million people. According to my back-of-the-napkin math, if every single potential college freshman did this, the American people could save $100 billion in costs. Now think about that for a moment. For a charitable gift of less than $10 million, you could save upwards of $100 billion 10,000 times Steve's investment. And say if it's only the 1 billion savings number that Steve mentioned, this would still be an insane return, a 100 times return. And a return, not for Steve personally, not for his bank account, for our bank accounts. Again, I'm not in government. I didn't have to wait and convince people to spend $60 billion on community colleges or any other sort of taxpayer subsidy. It's just nice where you can do things as a private citizen and, and not need help from anybody. The quintessential American spirit. Go West, young man. And modern states isn't just some theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing. It's already helping out real people. We actually are calling up the students as they pass and, and getting the story. So the first student who ever took a modern states course and then passed the CLEP exam so he could get college credit is a 17-year-old homeschooler out in Oregon. So I called him up to congratulate him because he was the first one. And he took a chemistry course from a professor from Columbia for free and now has college credit at 2,900 major universities. I said, do you plan to go to college? He says, no, I want to be an electrician. And so he just was, you know, and, but he's now taken, I think, two more of our courses and passed two more college credit exams. So he's a great story. And the rest of the people are talked to by my team. Talked to another woman who's a working mom, has a one-year-old baby, had to drop out of school to work and take care of her baby. And she stays up late at night and is taking, getting these college credits and courses done, you know, I think at one in the morning, because you can take these courses anytime and at your own convenience and play them back as much as you want. There was another guy we spoke to recently who's 26, was almost done with college, ran out of money, had to drop out, was one credit short of getting his degree, came to modern states, got the course done. You know, we, we paid for the CLEP exam and now he has his college degree. So there's just some great, you know, it, it's for all types of people. There are 50-year-olds taking it. We just talked to a 13-year-old. There's some prodigy 13-year-old in Arizona who uh, is taking college courses at age 13, and, uh, and so it's for everybody. But why is Steve doing all of this when he doesn't have to? Well, look, I, I believe everybody wants a meaningful life, and it, it goes back to any way you want to think about you know, humans and the purpose of being a, a human. It has nothing to do with being a Wall Street guy trying to or anything like that. It's just, I think everyone wants to, is looking for their own path to have a meaningful life. I try to have a meaningful life in all sorts of ways. I think obviously my family is very meaningful to me. My, my work life, I think, is proper and meaningful. And this was an idea that I thought was eminently achievable that could also be a, a good thing to have done in, 
in my life. And, you know, Dr. Walker's doing meaningful things in his life. The school teacher teaching the kindergartner and really giving that kindergartner personal attention is doing, having a meaningful life. Someone who gets up in the morning and takes care of their kid is having a meaningful life. This is just one thing that, you know, that I could do as, as, as that part of it for me. And great job, as always, on those, Alex. Our On Leadership series, Steve Klinsky, the founder of the private equity firm New Mountain Capital, which has created 26,000 new net jobs, founder of the first charter school in New York State history, and the founder of Freshman Year for Free. You can learn more about this incredible venture at modernstates.org. Steve Klinsky's story here on Our American Stories.